because the plane still flies. That's the big thing that I think everyone misses. Like the plane will still fly in nearly every situation. If it's bumpy, you know, lightning, rain, can't see anything, it doesn't matter, the plane still flies. And that was a big thing I learned from my old boss was that, you know, like the, there's a lot of situations you might get into, but just trust, trust the plane, like the plane will still fly. Welcome aboard the High Fly Media Podcast, dedicated to sharing the stories and experiences of the amazing people who make aviation happen. From pilots like me, to engineers, air traffic controllers and others, I'll explore their personal journeys, the challenges they've faced and the triumphs they've achieved. My name is Damien and I'll be your host. Whether you're a seasoned aviation enthusiast or new to the field, I invite you to join me as we take off on this journey of discovery. Welcome aboard another exciting episode of the High Fly Media Podcast. Today we have the privilege of sharing the awe-inspiring journey of Josh Volani, a pilot who soared across continents to fulfil his dream. Hailing from the Sunshine Coast in Australia, Josh's path has led him to the skies of Las Vegas, where he's currently navigating the boundless horizons of the aviation world behind the windscreen of an Airbus A320 family airframe for Frontier Airlines. So welcome, Josh. Good morning. So for the listener's sake, Josh is actually sitting in a hotel room in Dallas, Texas, and Josh and I were going to catch up yesterday, but we couldn't. What happened, Josh? Yeah, so I was, my original flight was planned to get in a lot earlier, but uh, as I was saying just before, we uh, were about to push back and we're actually early and I went to call for my pushback and the VHF one, the number one radio wasn't working at all. And obviously that's an issue. Can't be flying around with that. And ended up a big, uh, big deal having to swap around computers in the plane and uh, going into the uh, avionics bay with maintenance and, and doing all of that, which just causes a delay which was unfortunate. But on top of that, uh, we actually ended up number 32 in line to take off out of Las Vegas as well. <laughs> so, yeah, there's one thing after the other. And I got a, I got a screenshot of the, uh, of the flight radar with uh, yeah, 32 planes in a, in a big line went to take off out of Vegas. Oh, so my goodness. My record was 26 out of Newark. But yeah, 32 is my new record. And the captain said his record's 54. Where was that out of? JFK? Out of JFK. Uh, so uh, it took him two hours to take off. Oh, my goodness. So, and uh, any yeah. comments from the, the passengers or were the self-unloading cargo quiet on the way out? No, they were good. Um, they were good. They were understanding. The captain was really good. He was really good at communicating. And I think that's something that I'm, I'm learning a lot, uh, just watching and being under a few of the captains here. Um they just everything's transparency. Um, obviously, it's not a, it wasn't a big issue. You know, nothing's broken per se on the plane that it can fly. Mm. It's just a radio. You know, we swap number two into number one. That fixed that problem, and we have three radios at the end of the day anyway. So, yeah. So tell us a little bit about where it all started. Where your itch for aviation came from and and what did that journey look like what gave you your start yeah so i think it's it's nearly like a typical story like a typical start um i was introduced to aviation at a young age my grandfather was a private pilot and he had an aerobatics rating out of uh, toowoomba and i believe i was six or seven he wanted to take me up and they had a ct4 which used to be a uh, an ex air force trainer and 
I remember I, I got in the cockpit and then I didn't want to go and I just refused. And then I remember I got taken back home and I could see my dad and grandfather, they went up instead and I could see them flying and doing loops. And I thought that was actually pretty cool. <laughs> and then the next time I did it, how I think I was 12, I did go up that time and I was hooked, ridiculously hooked. It's just, that's been it ever since. I think when I was in high school, I saw some jobs that potentially paid more money, like anesthesiologist or something like that. Right, right. <laughs> but, but it just it just always came back to aviation. So that's that's the way I went about it. When I was thirteen, I joined Air Force Cadets, and I stuck with that until I was uh, seventeen, eighteen, leaving school. So about five years, and I think that was a big a big help. It was a really good introduction into military life but also they did a lot of aviation classes and um, like flight principles and stuff like that mm -hmm. so i just i could absorb some sort of aviation knowledge while being in school without paying so much for it as in flying lessons yeah sure. and that was a big big help so so yeah, that's, yeah i think that's where it just started from a young age and just kind of one thing after the other just kept just kept pushing me down a path um, that, yeah, just led to where I am today, I guess. That's cool. I've got a question there. So five years of Air Force cadets, is there a reason why you didn't go down the military path? Uh, I did. I did. I, I spent uh, two years uh, in the Army at ADFA in uh, Canberra with a job as a uh, helicopter pilot when I, was, when I was to finish that. I didn't follow through with it. My initial intention was always to be a, an aircraft pilot and I did try to go in through the Air Force, but it's incredibly competitive um, and, and yeah. So uh, I initially had the impression and, and from what I was told that you could, once you were in, you could move around a little bit, but it's, it's just not as simple as that. So when the time came to sign a return of service leave, you had two years. Um, I didn't sign it and, and decided to, to go the civilian route instead. Right. And then that's when I got out of the military and, and started uh, working and paying for the flying lessons myself. Right. So you did your civilian flight training then out of the sunny coast. I think it was Marucci, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. So I started uh, on the Sunshine Coast and I, I don't know how I found them. Um, from memory, it would have been a Google search or I would have been to the airport and, and seen them, but it was just the Aero Club. And I just did a little bit of uh, a little bit of research prior to that. I knew what they cost. Um, I knew what, they, what I was buying. It was kind of like a package. Mm -hmm. It was about five or $700, I think, from memory. It got you the exams and like two flights or something like that. And I remember I, I walked in, I met a, a guy named Doug had a chat about a couple of things and he's like, do you want to go flying? And I was like, ah, do I have to do something? <laughs> and he's like, we can just go. And he's like, and I was like, oh, okay. And yeah, so we just, we went. The first aircraft that I flew there was called a Pioneer 200. Um, so they're all RAOs aircraft at the Aero Club. Uh, it's just a two meter and it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Um, and then, yeah, I, I stuck with that place for a couple of years. 
because I, I just from whatever I could work and afford to pay was it was when I flew. And I think from memory from looking at my logbook, it definitely took a while to to get any traction. Um, but yeah, that's that's the first flying club that I was associated with and, and and that's where it all started on the civilian side of things. And I'm interested in a word that you just used there and that was you said that, you know, looking at your logbook, it took a while to get a bit of traction. What changed that gave you that traction? So I remember that there's always there's always like a milestone that you have to reach uh, with hours. And so, you know, you'd, you'd, however much it cost, um, you know, a couple hundred dollars to, you know, to, to pay for an hour of flying, you do that maybe once a week. You try and do a little bit more than that, but it, it'd probably be once a week. And if the weather's bad, you can't go. If it's strong crosswinds, yeah, those planes can handle not a whole lot. Mm-hmm. So you know, that restricted you in a few ways. Um, so it just kept kind of getting pushed and pushed and pushed. I finally went solo. And I remember that because um, Sunshine Coast is, I think it's Class D. Probably, yeah, it is. It is Class Delta. Uh, yeah, you have to have a medical. And I ran into a problem when I was going through the military that they thought I had a, a case of colorblindness. So it didn't stop me from getting my medical for the military, but it, it just made it a little bit more difficult. So when I went through that on the civilian side of things, when you do all your initial medicals, you have to go to an eye specialist. And I went to a guy in uh, Marichidor. And he was very, very good and kind of cleared everything up and, and got signed off and everything was was it was done. So that took a little bit of time. Um, so I actually remember for my first solo, I had to fly down with an instructor to Caliandra because that's a non-controlled and you don't need a medical. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I went solo and then I flew back. <laughs> so it was an ex- extremely expensive trip, yeah. but it, that's how I had to do it for the first like three or four times. And and then once you've done solo for a few hours, then you can start taking people. And then after that, you get to a certain amount of hours, and you you try you do your tests for. Uh, anyway, I, I ended up doing my RP, my RPL, my recreational parts license, and getting that done. Um, I did that one in Gympie. Mm-hmm. And and that was a good experience because that's that was the first time I went from a two-seater aircraft to a four-seater. I went to a 172. And the guys in Gympie were super nice. And we uh, he let me solo after like an hour in the plane. Yeah, right. And I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think I had like 25 or 30 hours um, in, in the RAL's aircraft and maybe, you know, 10, 10 or 15 solo as well. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, yeah, it was, it was good. It was great. You know, that was the first VH registered aircraft that I would fly, and then, uh, and then it kind of, and then it kind of died off a bit because that was quite expensive. Um, that one, that one ran a bit of money, and I was pulling money from anyone that I could. You know, you beg, borrow, steal. <laughs> that was the reality of it. Like yeah. you just had to. And uh, it wasn't till I. It wasn't until I went down the airport on the Sunshine Coast and met a group called uh, ADFA, funny enough, um, but Aerodynamic Flight Academy. Oh, yeah. They don't exist there anymore, um, but they were running programs of essentially zero to uh, commercial. Right. And 
by that point, I had about 60 hours of flying under my belt. And he said, you can still do it. Yeah, you can still go from, we'll teach you from zero essentially, but you'll have the experience and we'll, we'll take you all the way to a commercial. And then that will be done. Uh, that was under the vet, vet fee help scheme. Mm-hmm. And the other option was to have my private parts license, I believe it was, and then go all the way to uh, IFR or have my commercial parts license and then go to IFR, which would have cost an exuberant amount of money out of my own pocket, which I just didn't have and I wasn't going to get. Sure. So I chose to do the zero to commercial. And, and my thinking was that it got me a commercial license, which legally allowed me to work as a pilot. Mm-hmm. And from there, I can do the rest. So I signed up to that. It was five days a week and we flew most days. Um, if it was uh, a... Uh, if it was a commercial exam, we would study for a week, do the exam on the Friday, and then go into a week of flying. We would do two exams back to back and kind of knocked all those out eventually. And, and yeah, just flew till we had the, uh, I believe it was 200 hours for an integrated course at the yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, got it that way. So by the time I left, I had about 200, 260 hours of flying in total. Uh, but that was an that was an amazing group of people. Um, there was like a course of eight of us, and that was just a lot of fun, like a really really good time. Um, and then to survive, I uh, I would fly through the day. I was then uh, like the manager of an athlete's foot in Noosa, and I would work in the afternoons from like three o'clock to a close every day, and then I'd work Saturday Sundays. And then I'd go back to flying through the week and then work every afternoon and then work Saturday, Sunday. So wow. it was seven, seven days a week for about, for about a year and a half in total, I think it ended up being, yeah. That's some dedication so, there. I'm sure along the way you would have yeah. had any number of reasons or excuses to, um, to pull the pin. Yeah, I, I think I was just having so much fun and I was flying and I didn't see it coming out of my pocket, which was just really, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's coming out of the government's pocket. So I'm really thankful for that side of things. You know, I obviously have to pay it back now, but, um, you know, it was all, it was all kind of paid for. So, you know, when your, you know, when your slot came up and you could fly, you know, you went flying and, and, uh, it was a lot, you know, we we're flying, uh, Tobago's, uh, TB10s mm-hmm. and, yeah, TV tents and uh, some Piper Cherokees, and it was it was great. I think they're the one seven two in there as well for night flying, actually. And it was just fun, you know. It was the the instructors are really really good guys. Still good friends with all of those guys. Um, one of the other students that I was with, he followed me over to America. Um, I was I was I got him a job um, to come over here and. Now he flies a a triple seven cargo around the world. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So it's been really cool um, to see the progression of of a couple of us that did stick with it and made it um, in some way. It it worked out, but yeah. So we're you know we're still good friends that that are still helping each other out um, six years later. I think now. So yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And that really speaks to that um, community or the network of aviation 
in being a case of in some cases it's not you know what you know or two you know it is it it, it, it seriously is <laughs> i can't i can't say that enough of how much it's who you know than, than what you know because everyone has a commercial license everyone has yeah a night rating everyone has their ifr everyone has an ifr multi like that's that's just standard stuff so it has to it's all about what you can add to yourself um to make you more employable and i think that's what i learned especially with my first and and second job um once i did get into the workforce side of things that i could add to uh to the company and that made me more employable to them which was what they needed more than just a pilot because they could get that from anywhere and, so. and i'd really like to unpack that for the listeners sake especially you know for any um aspiring pilots that are that maybe in their rpl stage or or even through to cpl or an ifr stage i remember having a chat with you um so Josh and I are what, probably 20 years difference in age, maybe a little bit more. Um, and I remember having a chat with Josh, he just got his commercial ticket and he was talking about going up north and that's pretty common in Australia um, for new pilots, low hour pilots to head to Cairns or to Darwin um, and get some work out of those locations um, as their initial and, and off you went. Tell us what happened, mm -hmm. what were you flying and, and what made you appealing to the organization you ended up in? And then, and maybe then if you want to roll into uh, your first twin job or, or how that all eventuated, where you worked, what you added to these companies, why, what made you employable in your eyes? And then obviously, um, and maybe some of the challenges you met across the way too. Yeah, absolutely. So my first job was in a remote community in the Northern Territory. Uh, I had a friend that worked there and he gave me the insight of when to be in Darwin for interviews and got the job. Um, I wasn't there for too long, unfortunately, um, just, you know, whether it was, you know, conflict of differences or just, just the way I was um, living my life compared to the way it is out there. You know, you're in a small community of a couple of thousand flying planes that, you know, aren't incredible planes, but that's fair enough. That's aviation um, in, in that area. But it, it was just, it just didn't end up working out. And that's fine. You know, it was probably a massive, uh, is a wake up call and also like a kick in the butt mm -hmm. to, to really push a lot harder than I probably had been. I, I kind of felt like I got that one pretty easy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I did get a few hours out of it, but it wasn't anything incredible. But I was just flying a 172 um, in the Northern Territory out of a place called uh, Gumbalanya. So it was, it was a cool experience. I don't think I'd ever be able to go back to somewhere like that. Um, but to say I've done it and I know what it's like to live in a, in a little community, that's great, you know. So I, I take what I can from that one. Mm -hmm. So I was there for just a few, I think three, four or five months, maybe something like that. And then I came back to the Sunshine Coast. I was still looking for work. I ended up working uh, back at an athlete's foot that I had worked at previously just for money purposes so I could take care of my family. And then I uh, got in the car from the Sunshine Coast and I drove all the way to Cairns. 
and at every major city, so Rockhampton, Mackay, Proserpine, Whitsundays, uh, Townsville, and then essentially Cairns. Um, I stopped at all the airports and handed in resumes and, and did everything I could, spoke to whoever I could, and just trying to get an idea of what was going on. I had zero expectation that it would work. I, I was lucky I had family in Townsville, so I could essentially end up there and, and stay with them for a couple of days before driving back down to the Sunshine Coast. So it was a, it was a fun experience, I guess, yeah. but it was just daunting. You know, you're, you're walking into these places that you have no idea who anyone's there. You don't even, yeah, you don't even know if someone's there. Yeah. You know, you try and call ahead and organize interviews, but that's not always going to work. You don't know if they're even looking for people at the time. It, you know, it wasn't a hiring bustling, you know, aviation um, industry like it is now. It's just, you get what you get. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't until the very last location that I went to in Cairns. Um, it was called Daintree Air. And I went there. I had my brother with me because we had driven up from Townsville. And on the way up, we had gotten McDonald's for breakfast. And I'd, uh, I was wearing a business shirt and I spilled orange juice on it. Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, oh, you're kidding me. And I had a tie in the back and I was like, oh, I'll put, I'll put a tie on and it will cover the, the couple of spots. And walked into Danger Air, a guy named uh, Greg Latonda, amazing guy, um, incredibly hard worker. And he was on the phone for a little bit and I just, you know, stood waited and we had a chat and we talked for about an hour and we had a lot of common interests and met a few of the guys that were there. It looked like a bit of a bustling, you know, location. And he looked, he said at the end of it, there's like, a, yeah, it's about an hour. And at the end of it, he said, look, you know, we'll hire you. Um, wow. I do. Yeah, I do have someone starting soon as well. Um, but I do want you here. And that was kind of it. Um, so it, it was funny because it was, it really was the last place I was going to go to. And for it to, for it to work out that way was, was really, really good. It wasn't, you know, nothing was like in writing, nothing was, you know, set in stone. It was just, yeah, you know, you'd be great here. And yeah, so that, that's kind of how that first like major job happened. And um, we, I ended up back on the Sunshine Coast and then for about a week, I would just keep calling him to see when he wanted me to come up. And I finally got onto him a week later and he's like, yeah, come up and we'll get you going and, you know, blah, 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 blah. That's awesome. What I, well, yeah, well, what I didn't realize is that there was another mate uh, who's now a really, really good friend of mine named Tom. He, uh, he started the exact same time. He just got his commercial license out of Townsville and he was there first. So that's completely fine. Um, so he was flying. I ended up being more of like the bookings person. I ran their kind of IT, helped them with transporting passengers, cleaning aircraft, just anything that I was doing just to help out. Mm-hmm. Uh, creating websites, you know, making everything and everything I could just to get more people into the door because that's the only way we would fly planes is if people came in the door. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I did that for three months unpaid. 
Whoa, hang on a sec. So, yeah. and I want to paint a bit of a picture here for the listeners. So, Australians, yeah. they'll probably understand how far away Cairns is from Brisbane. And for those of you in Australia that don't, it's about 2,000 k's, roughly, mm-hmm. um, which is 17 hours drive. 17 hours drive, one about, about 1,200 miles for our um, non metric mm-hmm. listeners. Uh, so, it's yeah. no small drive, it's a long way. Um, it would have cost a fair chunk of change in fuel uh, and accommodation. Mm-hmm. And obviously, as mm-hmm. Josh has mentioned already, time. Um, and then you've gone back up there and then worked for three months for nothing. Yeah. I think he'd throw me like five or, you know, 500 bucks every now and again because I did something great. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was essentially three months of, of no work. But there is a silver lining to it was everyone that was there at the time, apart from like one guy, was all casual work. And the way casual work works is you are paid per hour of flying. So you have to fly to get paid. Right. The other guy was full time. So you just got, you got paid. And I think at the time it was maybe 36,000 Australian a year, something like that. And I guess I had done enough in those three months that when the when that three months came up, which was essentially the start of the financial year mm-hmm. from how I remember it, he then put me onto full time. So I skipped the whole casual thing and just went straight to full time. Oh wow. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Which was really helpful because it's cheaper for him to fly a full time pilot than it is to fly a casual pilot. Mm-hmm. So I'm flying not much to then flying a lot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that was it. Was awesome. It was great fun. You know, we did scenic flights around the Great Barrier Reef. We did tours to uh, Green Island and went snorkeling all day, and then flew back. And we were the ones that were snorkeling and you know <laughs> taking the people. Like it, it's this dream job that if only it paid, you know, kind of what I earn, kind of now you would never leave because yeah. it's incredible. Uh, apart from Cairns being extremely hot and humid, but just an incredible job uh, that you know it's. It's the kind of things you want to do when you, you know, start becoming a, a pilot because they just don't exist anywhere else. And uh, so I was, I was with them for, for two years in total. And by the time I was leaving them, I had about 1,200 hours, I believe it was. So at that point, I only had my commercial license. I had nothing else. Um, didn't have any other ratings, had nothing. So at the time, my boss said it would be better if you waited to a thousand hours and then you went and got your IFR, which is what I did. Mm-hmm. And I did that with uh, fast aviation in uh, Lismore. Um, Lismore, that's the one there, the floods. Yeah, Lismore. So there's a, a group out of Lismore and they were doing yeah, essentially um, you paid up front about $10,000 and you paid off the rest of the IFR, uh, multi engine IFR rating. And I could, I could swallow that. Um, I couldn't pay it all up up front, but I could, I could swallow that price. So I did that. And amaz- again, amazing guys. Um, those guys there were so, so good. And every time I did a renewal, I went straight back to, to them. They were just brilliant. Um, I couldn't recommend them enough. Fast aviation is more just incredible. So we, uh, I did that. And then from there... I was then introduced to another another guy named Jack Hart, who was running Port Macquarie Air. 
and he was essentially running a cargo service out of uh, Bankstown in Sydney as a feeder for uh, toll aviation. Mm-hmm. So they were flying caravans and chieftains. And I really wanted to fly a caravan. That was kind of just my goal. And he, he would give you a, a, a caravan endorsement, so essentially a GT gas turbine endorsement for like $3,000 which included like five hours and a flight renewal and yeah, just experience in a caravan. And that was fine. Again, another price I had to swallow, but at that time I had a little bit of money from working, so that was okay. Um, you know, but it still did put a stretch on everything, but it was something I knew I had to do. And it, it came out worth it, it became worth it, I guess. So I did that, it was in, uh, in Sydney. And we went down there, I went down there for like a weekend, knocked it all out and just got the rapport with him and, and had a really good chat and had his number. He knew who I was, he knew you know, my personality. And, and then I didn't hear from him for about six months. So I'd gone back to Cairns at this point and was working in Cairns. The only problem with that job in the end was that it is quite repetitive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite, you know, it's the same track around the Great Barrier Reef that you're going to fly. You're going to fly it seven times today. Um, you know, apart from the passengers changing out stuff like that, it's just a very repetitive job. So uh, after, you know, a thousand hours of flying that same kind of route, unfortunately, it does get a little uh, not as interesting. So... I was losing a little bit of motivation, sadly. Um, so I knew I needed to do something. And this was just before COVID. Like this was 20 leading, like end of 2019. Right. And a couple of things happened all at once where I'd been uh, selected to do a Cathay interview, a Cathay Airlines interview. And I did that in January 2020. And I got offered the job uh, for that, which was a, an awesome experience as well. Um, spent a lot of time studying and and with a, with a group of guys in Melbourne that, that would run you through the process and, and get you ready for that interview because it, it is known to be with the hardest or one of the hardest interviews in the entirety of aviation. Wow. Uh, like, like the guys here in America and they're like, yeah, that one's, that's nuts, that interview. And it was two days of just absolute grilling. Wow. And I loved it, just loved it. And <laughs> as I went, the guys that I was there in, in Hong Kong with there, I still talk to them today. Yeah. Like it was really, really good group of guys. So I got offered that, that was January. And then at the same time, uh, Jack had called me back and said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, look, just in Cairns, I was doing a little bit of Chieftain flying and just flying, uh, around the Great Barrier Reef in a, in a, in a Gibson Aero GA8. And he said, hey, do you want to come fly Chieftains for me? And I just said, yep, because I knew that it was a multi-job full-time and I could you know, get into it and it was going to be cargo and that was something different. So, and a lot of night flying. Mm. So, yeah, went down to uh, Sydney and, and jumped on that and just started flying Chieftains and three weeks later COVID hit the world yeah so i don't know how i pulled it off but 
Um, it's the only aviation sector that became bigger. <laughs> that cargo. didn't stop completely. Yeah. Was just cargo. It just it just went berserk. And uh, so yeah, I, I was flying nonstop. Um, for about two years, so I did about nine. I, li- I hit legal limits every year. Wow. Um, two years. And, and with Jack, I, you know, I flew chieftains, I flew caravans. Um, I have, yeah, a thousand something hours command in a caravan now. But, um, but it's good. It, you know, we, we were hiring at, at uh, it was Port Macquarie yeah, and we were hiring and I got my, my good friend from Cairns that started the same time I did. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, I got him a job in, in Sydney and so he came down a few, maybe six months after I did and um, and then, yeah, he got into it um, as well and it was great. It was a lot of fun. Like apart from the COVID side of things, like that was obviously hell, but we were still flying and we were doing a lot of flying and flying all around New South Wales. So it was good. Um, yeah, I'm super, super grateful, and I love that company more than anything. They, those guys, are just the best. The two owners there, Jack and Justine, are incredible people. Just they care about you more than they care about anything, and that is just—it's such a nice feeling. And again, I would never leave them if I was earning the kind of money I was here. That's yeah. just brilliant people. So. Um, that's something I've noticed. There are really, really, really nice people in aviation. Oh, I was going to mention, so you mentioned there during COVID, obviously, freight yeah. and it went mm-hmm. crazy mm-hmm. and you were flying legal limits. So for the listeners that aren't aviation buffs, um, you may come as a surprise to you to find out that pilots are only allowed to fly so many hours a year commercially. Um, mm-hmm. And that's basically, that comes down also to how many hours you can fly in a 24-hour period and, and there's a few other regulations around that. So um, it's, uh, I don't know, for people that I've spoken to, it's fairly rare to hear that, that a, a pilot's hitting their limits. Uh, probably in the, the airline world, it happens fairly regularly. Um, but maybe not yeah. so much in the, the early stages of flying, like to be hitting your legal limits and you've only been in the air for kind of 12 to 18 months is pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was just, um, it was, it was extraordinary. I couldn't believe it. I felt it physically. Oh, you would have been it. tired, yeah. Yeah, it was very fatiguing. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the legal limit, and it depends what kind of job you're doing in aviation, you know, because there are different areas that come under the regulations of what you're allowed to fly and how much you're allowed to fly. But my legal limit was 900 hours per year on a revolving 365-day basis. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I was hitting that 900-hour mark um, well, pretty much after the whole, after a year that I was there. I just kept hitting that 900 hours. I'd have to take a few days off or, or a week off so I could get some hours back on my side and then I'd start flying again. Right. So, uh, it, but it was good. You know, winter was a lot of night flying. And, and again, that, that kind of leads into where I come to America because you need the, you need 100 hours night, essentially. Mm-hmm. But you need 100 hours. Right, to then be able to work in America. And I was never going to uh, get those hours outside of that job at that time. So if I didn't have that job during COVID, not a chance I'd be here where I am today. So, you know, you know, 
becomes full circle in it at the end of the day and you know everything happens for a reason and, and that one did and yes yeah, super super thankful and like i said super thankful for the for jack and justina that were there they, they are just such amazing people yeah sound like the kind of people you want to work for that's for sure yeah i i would recommend that to anybody well you know and whilst my stint um was fairly short-lived i I think the there's a lot to be said for flying for people you trust, and uh, and in particular flying for people whose aircraft you trust, because uh, it's your life that's on the line. You know, it's you wanting to go home to your family at night, um, and if you speak that highly of uh, of um, company owners and and their aircraft, then that to me speaks volumes. Um, to the type of people that they are so yeah that's uh that's really good to hear what uh, we never talked about or, or we never had the conversation deep enough and probably because we you know we're a bit of a difference in age and we didn't used to chill <laughs> so i never knew like you had a desire to go to america plus you went off to sydney for a couple of years and basically i didn't have contact with you but you know that's okay i didn't cry too I much didn't, i didn't see any of my family for two years yeah that's that's a grind that's for sure yeah, I missed weddings, missed birthdays, missed everything for two years. So, when, when I don't feel so bad then. When did, um, <coughs> when did this America thing drop into your head? This had dropped into my head in Cairns. So maybe a year into having my commercial license, I had come across a guy on YouTube that was flying in America and it was just awesome. You know, there were so many routes, there were so many bases. You went to all these places. Um, you know, you were flying jets at 1,500 hours. You know, that's mm. unheard of prior, mm. especially at that time. And um, I just just loved the idea of it. Um, and it's such a big country and it's such, well, it's, it's comparable to Australia, but there's just so much more. You know, there's You've got, you got stuff in the middle. <laughs> we don't have stuff in the yeah, middle. <laughs> exactly. You know, there's, there's 26 million people in Australia. There's like 320 million in America. Yeah. You know, so it's just a different kettle of fish. And aviation's the same. It's 20 times bigger in America than it is in, in Australia. So it was always, you know, on my mind to do it. It was going over to another country. That was exciting. Um, just, yeah, just just doing something different, just getting away, flying, flying jets faster than having to wait for Qantas or Virgin to, you know, say yes. And, and then at the same time, I would still be flying to Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, you know? Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. The milk run. That's fair enough. Like that's just how it is. But yeah. you know, it, it was, you know, Oh, one day I'm in New York, the next day I'm in Miami and then I'm in LA, then I'm in, uh, you know, Chicago. That's, you know, you're hitting, you know, top 10 most busiest airports in the world yeah. and, that, and that was just unfathomable to me you know i couldn't couldn't imagine that would be a possibility so that was yeah a long time in the making a long time in the in the process um but it was if if cafe had worked out i i imagine i would be there if it wasn't for covid and you know it, it all just happened that's fine I, I think i would have ended up at cafe pacific which would have been great as well but um, America was always the first, the first one to, to be an idea. So, so it was when America opened back up and I had everything I needed 
and America was hiring Australian pilots again. Mm. So just th- those few things had to happen, and and when they did is is when is when I jumped on board that. Yeah. And so did you come straight to Frontier Airlines then? No. So I went to a place called GoJet Airlines, and I was there with a, a lot of other Australians. It seemed to be a place that Australians were gravitating to because right. they were they just kept hiring and hiring and hiring. So. And it was a good introduction into into America. Um, I came over in January 2022 and did uh, ATP, which is essentially a multi-crew course in Australia. Mm-hmm. So you do about a week of, of classroom work and then you do uh, 10 hours in a, uh, in a simulator. And they, they put you in different aircraft simulators. It's not so much about the aircraft, it's about the, the multi-crew facet of, of flying. Right, and I, and I, and this is kind of, and then another thing that became full circle is that I ended up in an A three twenty for eight hours and a seven three seven for two hours in the sim, in the sim when I was doing my ATP course, right. and I funny I was doing it here in Dallas actually I just passed the hotel that I was that I stayed at, and I was telling the uh, captain I'm with, but that's when I fell in love with an A three twenty, just absolutely fell in love with it and. The instructor that I had as well was an ex-F-16 pilot from Greece. <laughs> and he was awesome. He was incredible. And because of that, I then fell in love with it more. So, so flying an A320 became the thing I wanted to do. And that's then how I somewhat ended up here at, at Frontier after that. So, But I spent eight months at, uh, at GoJet. I didn't fly a whole lot. Um, there's just a large amount of first officers compared to captains. Mm-hmm. So you sit on reserve and you, I just didn't get used. So I flew 140 hours in, in eight months, I oh, think wow. was, was, was what I ended up with. So a whole lot of not much. And what airframes um, were you flying there? So it was called a CRJ 550. It's based off the CRJ 700. It just has 50 seats. Right. And the whole big reason why that happens, but it's essentially a scope scope clause for United Airlines and uh, it was great fun because it's a lot lighter than the original aircraft but it has the same engine so it's just as powerful mm-hmm. so it's just a little rocket rocket and I did a lot of flying between New York and Washington and uh, some Chicago flying and just you know St. Louis like that kind of kind of box area is where they went around so it was great fun. Like I said, it had a lot of Australian guys that were there. So, you know, we all relied on each other. But the industry in America was really, really starting to pick up um, at that point as well because the legacies, the United's, Americans, and, and Delta's were really hiring again. So every, everyone started leaving. And, uh, and I put my application out to, to a couple of other airlines to see if they would, you know, if it would work. And it has to be airlines that, hire e3 pilots so it does limit me in what i can get um but in saying that i've been extremely extremely happy with with what i've got so just Uh, to unpack that is an e3 e3 is that part of like a working visa or something like that yeah so it's a it it came about because of a treaty between america and australia because of world war ii so it's called a professional visa um it it doesn't involve just pilots it involves a few uh, jobs, a few industries, 
but you essentially have to have a certain amount of experience <clears throat> and, um, and, and, and it come under a certain category and right. then you're able to, to apply for it and the company has to sponsor it and the government has to allow it. So a few things have to happen, but it's a fairly common practice now, like mm-hmm. these days. So a lot of airlines in America are actually doing them. So, yeah. Cool. So yeah, you're, so that- you're kind of restricted to those that would do that. <coughs> and I'm guessing too, yeah. well, you, you may not have done this, but in my mind, restricting those to airlines that flew A320s. Somewhat. <laughs> uh, yeah, somewhat. It just, it seemed that the ones that were doing it flew into A320s at the time. Oh, well, so it was fine. <laughs> it was fine. Uh, but yeah, it, it was good that it worked out that way. Uh, I don't think I would ever fly a 737 personally, but... If I had to, I would, but it's definitely not a plane I'm excited about in any way mm-hmm. after being in the times. So, yeah, grateful for the guys that fly them that get me home, but that's that's about as far as I'm going to go with those those things. So, yeah, yeah. Never, but, never, uh, never say never, Josh. Never say never. No, you never can because you never know when that will bite you. That's so, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, so I didn't fly a whole lot in uh, in GoJet. I was there for about eight months, 140 hours, and then I came to Frontier, and that was in uh, November last year. And after all the training, uh, I think I, I got checked in January this year, and started flying or end of January this year, and then started flying in March, um, and then I just haven't stopped then. And the good thing about this, about where I am now, is is that there is just so much flying and so much that you can pick up. So again, there's legal limits in America that you're only you're only allowed to fly so many hours per month, you know, per seven day period per year. Mm-hmm. And I uh, I made an effort to fly as much as I physically could. So I flew 101 hours in 31 days in the first 31 days that I worked, wow. and then I flew hours in 43 days here than I did in eight months ago, Jeff. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. That's really impressive. So, and did you get to choose your base or were you allocated Las Vegas? So you are allocated uh, at, at your initial um, induction when you, when you start with the company. It's just where they need people. Mm-hmm. But you're also able to, not instantly because it takes three months, but you're also able to bid another base straight away and if you're awarded that base because there's available slots once you're awarded it three months down the track is when you'll be put into that base right so that included the time and training as well so most people that wanted out of vegas i think they ended up in vegas for maybe one month and then they were moved to the base that they originally picked or or wanted or was their second or third choice that just didn't want Vegas at all. So, um, but yeah, you are, you are assigned a base initially, but it changes every, every course. So they, they do a course once a month between 50 and 60 people. And sometimes it's Miami, sometimes it's Denver, sometimes it's a mix of, you know, Vegas, Miami, Denver, Phoenix. It's just wherever they need people at that time is, is where they will assign you. So, yeah. Right. And you lucked out yep. with Vegas. Yeah, lucked out and I think lucked into as well because Vegas for this company is where the most flying happens. So nice. the most amount of 
the most amount of block hours is in Vegas. And because it's such a junior base, um, the rotation and churn is quite high. So I shot up in seniority really, really fast. Because ah, so you stayed now, there. Yeah. So now I've always held what they call a line. So you have reserve flying and line flying. A line is where there is flying put on your schedule from the start. You don't have to sit at home and wait for someone to call you. Like you're assigned to that flight. Mm-hmm. And that's where quality of life comes into it. So I've had that from day one because of how much of a, a turn a, a churning it happens in Vegas. Um, but now uh, I actually just did my bid for next month, October, and I'm at 44% seniority in, in Las Vegas. So it's been really, really good. Um, very lucky to, to be here. And I've just tried to make the most of it as well and just flying as much as I possibly could. And that probably leads into my next question, and that's to ask where to from here. So what are your long-term goals and, and where do you see yourself in five, ten years? What do you see yeah, yourself they, flying? Yeah, it, it is hard. It's really, really hard because you don't know what's happening you know, in, a, in a month or a year from now in aviation. Mm. COVID is back along and, you know, wipes out everything again. You know, so it, it's hard to be certain about what i would what i would be doing but i think uh after being after getting to where i am now i would like to to stay in in this company and i do love this company it's been a lot of fun and given me a lot uh so far so i'd like to be here captain upgrade is not going to take too long two years uh, another thing compared to australia which i think back when i left was like 12 so Yay. 12 years compared to two years, I'd rather take two years. Thank you. Uh, so two years as a captain, uh, two years, yeah, two years to become a captain and then uh, to become a line check airman. On top of that, that's another 500 hours as a captain. You can then apply for that position. Uh, and I'd love to do that. I'd love to teach the guys how to fly an Airbus and, and be with them as they start flying uh, in this in this kind of, in this kind of world because it is it is different compared to to where a lot of people are coming from so i'd like to be a part of that and and just see where that goes i'd love to get into recruiting i was flying with a recruiter the other the other day and he was telling me about what he does and i remember him from when i did my interview and mm-hmm. it was just a lot of fun you know and and being responsible for where the company goes in the future by the people that you hire that sounds like a lot of fun to me and a big responsibility which i'd like to have so so yeah i think i think just continuing with where i am now uh is kind of the goal sometimes i'm like oh i should try to do emirates but then i speak to a lot of emirates parts and they're like nah. <laughs> mm. you know a lot of a lot of ex-emirates guys maybe they're ex-emirates guys for a reason i don't know but there's a few of them in america and you know they'll be like no nah, don't do that you'll be fine and i'm like oh okay well, and then <clears throat> and then I go to a lot of airports where I see a lot of bigger aircraft, yeah, A350s, 777s and such. And, you know, oh, that would be really, really fun. But again, it's, I actually don't like flying for a long period of time. Mm. Um, like six hours is, I think, my limit. After that, I'm just exhausted. And I just, it's not fun. So, mm. so flying long haul, car, like long haul cargo, long haul, you know, international isn't, isn't really that interesting to me anymore. Um, I like the, the, the two to three hour flights there. That's a good, 
good amount of you know takeoff and landings and a, and a little bit of fun. So that's it. That's that's really cool. I'd love the well. Like you said, it's you don't know what's around the corner as far as the world and as far as aviation goes, and you know none of us are in control of that. Um, the fact that you've found a home away from home in Vegas, and I believe yeah. you've got a little baby now, so you know it makes sense in my mind anyway. Being a fairly you know older conservative kind of guy, it makes sense that you get to have the family life. But you've got it sounds like an incredible opportunity for a career path within frontier airlines flying an airframe that you love yeah they they do give you a lot of opportunity and there is a lot of opportunity here uh i think i was saying to you prior to to us starting that they have an order book of actually 200 plus aircraft Mm -hmm. so i think this quarter so these three months we're getting six aircraft um next year is another 30 something aircraft and they're all brand new. You know, Frontier has the youngest uh, airframe uh, life in America, which is pretty fun. So I've, I've flown planes that are, you know, not so much five days old, but once they get to America and they actually start flying, they've only been flying for five days. Far out. And I'm flying. You That's know, awesome. uh, you could be some places in Australia flying planes that are 18, 20 years old. Yeah. So we don't actually have a plane that old. I think our oldest was eight years old. Wow. So, so it's all very, new very, metal. Yeah, all new metal. All the engines are essentially Neos. I think we have five uh, CEOs, which current, uh, which were the current engine options, which were older, older aircraft. The planes are essentially uh, Jetstar fly. Right. So they've started getting some Neo aircraft, but 90% of our fleet are Neo. So it's all and it, you know, really efficient aircraft as well. So that's always been really cool. Um, so it, it is, it's a great place. We fly to a lot of places. We fly internationally to the Caribbeans and, and Mexico and uh, Guatemala and Puerto Rico and Jamaica. And like you, so you, there's a lot of opportunity and I think it will just get better. So I can't see a real big reason to, to turn away from it. Um, we're in contract negotiations and, and everyone has been in the airlines in America for the last couple of years and, and ours have, have kicked into gear now. So just better work rules and more money and can't complain about that. So <laughs> No, well, it sounds like you're in a very positive place, that's for sure. Yeah, I believe so. What... Um it's a bit of a loaded question, so I don't know. You might need to think about it a little bit unless you've already given it some thought. What challenges or concerns do you foresee in that journey that you're going to have to overcome apart from, you know, you're going to need a certain amount of hours to become a captain or, or whatever it might be? Do you, what other challenge do you, challenges do you see that you might have to go and do a, bit, do a bit of extra study for or something like that? Yeah, so you're, like, you're always studying um, and if you're not, it, you know, you're kind of putting yourself in a bad situation. So we do get checked twice a year, um, but that's fairly standard in, in airlines. Uh, so that I wouldn't count that as, a, as a, a concern or anything. I think the biggest concern is just job security. Right. Um, you know, my job relies on the E3 visa to, to be current and uh, to continue with that company. And they're hiring that many people that I do believe they will continue it or at least keep renewing it. It would be a, more for them to lose me than, than to, to get rid of the visa. 
So I, I do feel good about that part of it, but that is a concern um, that I would have uh, for that. But in saying that, that's okay because I'm getting a lot of hours in airlines and that does transfer around the world. You know, and, and an A3 is if, you know, the most, if not the second most, you know, flown aircraft on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of places that I could go. So that's great. Um, but yeah, just, just, just opportunity, just timing. Um, as long as they keep hiring, as long as they keep growing, there's no massive recession that would, you know, kill a lot of the industry off. Um, just things like that. A lot of the economy does affect how aviation works. Uh, but I think COVID has also pushed it to a point where people really just want to start traveling again. And that's what happened for a lot of, a lot of years and it's still happening today. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. yeah, like we were in uh so yesterday I flew out of, uh, Orange County in California. So just below, um, Los Angeles and they call it Santa Ana is another name for it. And we, f- we had an oversold flight to go to Dallas. <laughs> I, was, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I can't believe so many people want to go to Dallas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, but that's, it's nothing like that is absolutely nothing. 180 people in America is peanuts. Mm. You know, so, uh, we're always flying full planes. Um, our new aircraft that we're getting, a, that we're getting, but have a few of about 20, uh, the A321 Neos, we have 240 seats in those aircraft. Uh, and that's comparable to some of the 787-800 aircraft that bigger airlines fly. Same amount of people. Wow. So, you know, we're really, we're really packing a minimum aircraft, but, you know, you're responsible for 240 people flying across the country, you know, and that's a lot of fun. It's a lot of not stress, but, you know, it's, it's a lot of uh, responsibility. And I find that I really, really enjoy that side of aviation. And cool. uh, as long as all that keeps going, then everything should work out quite well and uh and yeah so yeah uh, i'll take with whatever comes you know i can i can deal with it um having a good reserve of you know uh good reserves of uh, rainy day <laughs> money is always helpful yes, uh, if anything was to ever happen but uh yeah i think everything else is, is looking pretty good at the moment and uh, I just hope it stays that way. I'll do whatever I can to make it stay that way. Uh, but aviation will continue going forever. Everyone wants to travel. So yeah. if yeah. I have to move countries again, move countries again, it's, <laughs> that's fine. It's exciting. Oh, there was one question I was going to ask, and, I, and thank you for sharing that. And I understand the boat got rocked with COVID and um, you know things are fairly unsettled still. Um, and there's a lot in, in the world that aviation will be impacted by that you're just not in control of. So you really do just have to do your best and go along for the ride. But uh, yeah, I'm really excited by your opportunities at Frontier. I, I'll i be completely honest with you, I hardly knew they existed until I started um, to catch up with where you were and saw that you were flying for Frontier. And, and that sounds really, really promising. The fact that there's that many aeroplanes on the order books and you're flying with full planes, it's it's very, very positive. It's a it's a smaller airline. It's comparable to a Jetstar, where it's just their low cost carrier in America. Um, but even as a smaller airline, we have 130 aircraft at the moment. You know, so comparable to Australia, it's quite large. Mm. But in America, quite small. 
when you have other airlines that have like five, 600 aircraft. Um, right. I think recently, uh, Southwest Airlines just hit 800 737s. Wow. So, yeah, it's just when I say America's just bigger in, in aviation, it's just that much bigger. Yeah, wow. So, yeah. So it is, it is, it is a smaller airline that's, you know, just kind of slowly building itself up. We've been around for a while, uh, but comparable to a lot of other airlines, yeah, quite small, but still an order book of a couple hundred aircraft and, and that's exciting. Yeah, yeah very exciting. Hopefully I fit in that. Well, to round this out, I'm going to throw a couple of questions at you, some quick fire questions. So um, if you're ready for those, I'll, I'll shoot them. Go for it. Okay, so the first one is, can you tell us about a memorable experience you had flying a particular aircraft and what made it special to you? I think the first time I flew a Chieftain by myself was pretty, was pretty memorable, my first twin. That was a pretty big deal. Uh, I remember my very first solo in Caloundra. That was a really, really big deal. That was, I know people might, might not get it, but, and people that have done it will probably get it. But that sense of freedom in flying a plane mm. is exhilarating. Like it was like nothing else. And, uh, and I think it's either I loved that so much that I didn't stop or I was too stupid to stop. So I just didn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not where I am today. So I, I don't know which one it is, but, um, but that was extremely exciting. Uh, and then the first time I flew an Airbus, uh, you know, with, with people and, and being responsible for that. I flew from Las Vegas to Orange County and I thought this is, this is wild. This is nuts. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you can't believe that you're allowed to do it really. Yeah. Yeah. It, bit it like, feels a bit like parenthood. I don't know how many times yeah. my wife and I've gone, we've got, how many have I got? Five. I've got five kids. We've got five kids. But how do we become parents? <laughs> Who let us become parents? <laughs> so, you're, yeah. flying, you're flying an airliner, Josh, with 240 people on board. They let you do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's awesome. You're doing, yeah, 600 kilometers an hour, 800, well, 700 kilometers an hour through the air, like through the air, and you're just 240 people behind you. That's just like, you, know, you don't really think about it when you're doing it. Obviously, yeah. there's a lot of stuff going through your mind, but. Yeah, I guess when you do get to stop and, and look at that kind of, you know, aspect of what you're actually doing, it's a little bit like, oh, geez, don't screw up. <laughs> no. Well, well, yeah. the reality is, you know, and the airlines aren't stupid and, and they have to pay the insurance premiums, right? So they look at your history and what you've been through and what kind of person you are and they go, yep, this is the kind of person we need flying the airplane. So, yeah. 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 No, they, they are really good. And, um, and... A lot of the uh, a lot of the airlines in a, in America were doing like a Zoom interviews, and then you'd get a job offer from a Zoom interview. Wow! The Frontier was different. You actually went to Denver for the day, and you did a uh, you did a, an exam. You they checked all your logbooks and uh, licenses, and then you did a situational based interview. So you're in a uh, paper cockpit with another guy and they just threw situations at you mm. and and then you did a panel interview on to after that so it was a really thorough process and in my mind that weeds out a lot of what you don't want 
Yeah. So I knew I would be with people that are people that should be here. And I really, really appreciated that. So that was one of the reasons that I came here. And how did, not, not so much a, a comparison thing, but more so probably maybe even from a preparation perspective, how did that frontier recruiting process compare to the cafe recruiting process? And, and it kind of, to me, it goes without saying that the, going through that cafe process a couple of years earlier probably was a massive preparation for getting the gig with frontier. Would you agree? Yeah, so in comparison of like difficulty, like maybe half, maybe maybe even less. Wow, so cafe um, really was that grueling. It's it's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, cafe, you do a whole sim. You know, do, you do a whole sim session at A three thirty, and they make you fly an ILS into Hong Kong raw data and do a go around. Wow. Um, memorize all the call outs and profiles prior to going to Hong Kong. Like that alone for an for a person that has never flown an airliner mm. and doesn't know what a profile is and doesn't know the call outs and has never flown a raw data ILS on a PFD, ridiculous. You know, like so if you went into that situation without knowing what you were doing, really, really did like you have to be you would if you got through that, you were brilliant. You are really, really good. Mm. Uh, I remember I I paid for a, a simulator session with an ex Qantas A330 pilot because I wanted to know what was going to happen. I just, I was not going to go there without knowing what I was getting into. And I'm glad I did. You know, that's, that was a big reason. I think why I was able, why I was successful in that, in that, in that instance. Um, but I do agree that, that going through Cathay first, I just have an idea of what's going to happen mm. or I have an idea of what I'm going to say to certain questions because I'd been through them so many times in my head and written them down and said them out loud and was doing mock interviews with people. I had just done so much preparation prior to Cathay that anything that's happened after that, I've already got those kind of, uh, yeah, like I said, answers to certain questions or a lot of, a lot of airline industry interviews that tell me a time that, so very similar to this, you know, tell me a time that this happened, tell me a time that that happened, you know, what's something you could have done better, what's something you, you know, you got yourself in a situation that you probably shouldn't have, you know, have you ever broken any rules, um, you know, when have you had to deal with a passenger, whenever to deal with all that kind of stuff. And I'd had those situations in my career. It's just verbalizing them and putting them into a structured response. And that was the practice that I'd, I'd been given in preparation to the, uh, to the cafe interview. Right. So all of I just kept using um, those same basic skills and, and techniques in every other interview that I've done so far. And I've been offered jobs at every other interview that I've done. It's just I just didn't take them. Um, you open just, the right door. You walk through the right door. Yeah, I just chose Frontier over the other, the other ones that were on, on offer. And uh, I'm, I, yeah, I'm glad I did. I'm sure the other guys would have been amazing as well. But for me, this one's worked out really, really well. Awesome. You alluded earlier on to flying um, what I consider to be the princess of the skies, but that's probably because I haven't flown an A320, the caravan, um, that you <laughs> would take that plane back into conditions that you perhaps wouldn't fly another plane. Um, my next yeah. question might relate to one of these experiences, and that's what's one of your most fear-filled flight experiences. 
Yeah. I'm sure I'm not in Australia now anyway, so I can't get in trouble. But uh, <laughs> Well, be careful. Be careful what you say. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, it'd, be, it'd be impossible to prove it anyway, but that's fine. Uh, but uh, obviously cargo is a big deal too because there's no one on board. Mm. That helps um, because I would never take people in these situations. But cargo is just, a, it's just another world. And people that have flown in cargo or fly cargo, you just – you, you understand it where you can do a lot more um, because the plane still flies. That's the big thing that I think everyone misses. Like the plane will still fly in most situations, nearly every situation. If it's bumpy, you know, lightning, rain, can't see anything, it doesn't matter. The plane still flies. You just need wind across the wing, right? It, yeah. So, and that was a big thing I learned from my old boss was that, you know, like the, there's a lot of situations you might get into, but just trust just the plane, like the plane will still fly and you know how to fly a plane. So just do your job. So I think the situation, the one that caught the one, it was just before I left Sydney actually. And um, it definitely was my, not riskiest, but it definitely was the worst weather situation I've ever been in. Um, a school line went through, essentially just went through New South Wales from west to east. And I was in a, a place called Hay which is west of Griffith and, uh, and uh, Wagga Wagga. And um, I was flying a route back to Sydney and you do about six stops on the way. And uh, I, I, I'll admit I was a little bit, uh, I knew the weather was there. Um, that wasn't my problem. I think I hadn't checked the no tams, which everyone tells you to do. And, you know, a pilot that's been flying long enough will tell you they don't always do it. And if they tell you they do, I promise you they're lying. So that's it. They, they're lying. So I just didn't check the no terms for Griffith Airport. Flew there from Hay. It's about an hour. And when I got there, the, air, the, the runway was completely flooded. So <clears throat> not a big deal. Uh, you know, I had plenty of fuel. That, wasn't, that was no issues or something like that. But I was meant to go there and pick up freight. You know, so you get there and you're like, oh, geez. <laughs> so you know, I still have photos of it because I couldn't believe it, that this whole runway is just flooded and everything around it's flooded. But the storm was there for only like 20 minutes. Wow. So obviously, a lot of rain. A lot, and it just wasn't going away. Um, you know, so you're on the phone calling your boss, you're on the phone calling the freighter guy, the career on the ground being like, hey, I can't land. Um, I'm going to go to the next place. Do you want to meet me there? And, you know, then I started getting onto all the weather and no terms and be like, all right, can I actually land at the next place? Can I go to Wagga? Can I go to everywhere else that I have to go? Mm. And that was good. Uh, but then flying into that weather was uh, pretty crazy. I've never seen so much lightning in my life. The, blue, the sky was practically blue the entire time. Um, but again, I, you know, I, I kind of tell people this, but I just don't look outside at that point. <laughs> I just look at... I just kind of put my head down, look at the instruments and just don't pay attention because the plane's still going to fly, you know, whether it's sunny outside, raining outside, lightning outside, the plane's still going to fly. So I just kind of didn't look outside. So it didn't really bother me. Um, but uh, I do remember the part that the thing that got me the most was I was flying from Wagga back to Sydney direct because I was meant to go somewhere else, but I just, I refused to go there because of its location and, proximity to mountains and the, the weather that was there at that time. I just refused to do it. And the runway was small. Uh, it's a place called Kudamundra. 
and the runway is really small and the lighting is horrible and it just that was a situation I wasn't willing to get myself into. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I decided to fly directly from Wagga back to Bankstown and flying over the mountains. I could still see the ground fair enough at like 7,000 feet. So it's just, just lightning in clouds and, and a little bit of rain. But it was the, the turbulence that started really getting me. And I was IFR, so obviously you have to maintain an altitude. Um, and there's a thing you can do called getting a block altitude so you're allowed anywhere in a certain um, altimeter setting area. Mm-hmm. So I set seven to 9,000. And by the time I had said that and he had replied back to me that I was cleared, I was already at 9,000 feet. Oh, wow. But I was trying to stay at seven. Yeah. Well, I was already. So at that point, you kind of just don't try and fight it. You just go with it. It's just waves. You know, it's just, that's just how it works. And um, as long as I kept the plane level, uh, whether it went up or down, within you know within margin obviously i was happy to let it do that uh of course i would never have someone on the plane with me that i would do that with i would never have gone into that situation because it's it's not comfortable mm. uh, i definitely hit my head a couple of times that hurt <laughs> and were you in a van but, or a chieftain then yeah in a van i wouldn't i don't i don't think i would have done that in a chieftain i'm sure a chieftain could do it but I just have more trust in a caravan to do it. And the caravans that we were flying had an upgraded engine on them, so they were quite powerful for right. what they were. So I knew that I could get out of any situation comfortably. But yeah, the, the weather is always the worst part of it. Um, I think the biggest difference was coming from that world where I was flying through anything and everything hmm. because I trust in the aircraft. It was just me. I wasn't responsible for anyone else in the aircraft. It was just boxes. And a lot of it was rural. Uh, coming into airline industry where you go around nearly every cloud. Mm. So, mm. you know, you avoid clouds like they're the plague. So I was like, really? We're going to go around that? He's like, yep. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I guess we're going around that one. You know, <laughs> when you fly 500 knots across the ground and you'll be out of it in 15 seconds, but, you know, you don't want to make the the passengers in the That's back right. are uncomfortable. Don't anyway. want to stress them out and yeah, exactly. spill their drink. Yeah, and if it's their first time flying, you know, that's obviously quite scary. You don't want crazy turbulence. So you go around everything. You know, you're always asking about what, what's the uh, what's the rides like. You'll always hear that on the radio. What's the rides like at 36,000 feet, 38,000 feet? You know, you'll, you'll check on to the next frequency and, and they'll be like, oh, you know, it should be smooth ahead. It should be light turbulence ahead. It should be turbulence for 20 miles. It'll be sweet. Just stuff like that's all you get told all the time because everything is revolved around passenger comfort. Hmm. So that's just a whole 180 of what I was doing uh, in Australia. So that took a minute uh, to get into my head that that's how it should be. Hmm. Um, but other than that, it's it's been good. That's so, awesome. Yeah. This next question, uh, I'm not going to preempt it with anything because I don't want to put any, any seeds in your head. If you were given an expense-free opportunity to be endorsed on any airframe, which would it be and why? Good question. I I used to think it would be some sort of big airline, like airline A380, 777, A350, you know, brand new A330s. But... I've learned that no matter what you're in, the cockpits all look fairly the same and flying at 38,000 feet all looks the same. So whether it's a big plane, small plane, they all feel the same. They really do. Um, 
So honestly, if I had to, if I wanted to, if I was to fly anything these days, I'd love to get my uh, L39 Albatross rating. Oh, yeah. It's actually a plan of mine. <laughs> I haven't told the wife about that one yet, but that's fine. She doesn't, she doesn't have to worry about she it. She just found out. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's definitely one I'm, I would love to get. Any fighter, any fighter jet would be an incredible, that kind of like thrill-seeking, kind of really fast yeah. aircraft with a lot of fun. But I think an L-39 kind of is the good balance between the both of those two things that I could legally fly comfortably. That's cool. Um, I, yeah, I would love to do a, a, a seaplane rating as well. Um, I think that's very easy to do here in America, and uh, and that that's definitely one of the next things that I'll that I'll do is, is get a seaplane rating because I think that's just really cool landing on water. Yeah, not many people can do that. So no. You land well. Yeah. I mean, you can't land anywhere, but you can certainly land a lot more places than just a you know the designated runways. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I remember I used to see them in Bankstown. They used to be the caravan seaplane caravans that would do the tours around the harbour, and they would land in Bankstown for their maintenance. And uh, they, yeah, they're awesome. They're so cool, and I reckon that would be a lot of fun. Something different. Yeah, just to try it. They have done it. Hundred percent. Um, lastly, what advice would you give to someone? Oh, you've given a heck of a lot of advice, which has been really insightful and awesome. Um, is there any other advice you'd give someone who's just starting out in aviation and, and perhaps what resources or support systems you'd recommend they seek out? Yeah. Um, on top of what I've already said, <clears throat> I, I, I'm not going to say the way I did it was definitely the best way to do it. Um, but whatever it takes to get to the commercial stage, I would do anything. If I had to do my time again, I would do whatever it takes to get to the commercial license part of, of aviation. So I could legally fly and be paid to do that. Mm -hmm. And then everything after that is just who, you know, who you meet and how hard you work. So that's what I would say is, is get to commercial as quick as possible, like as quick as you can using any money that, either your parents, yourself, the government, whatever it took, I would get to that point and then, and then kind of work your way from there, similar to what I did. Um, and as a support system, um, people that are in aviation already, everyone's done something that you're about to do before you. So just have a chat to people, um, ask questions, be friendly, you know, stay in contact with people, um, build rapport, you know, if you don't want to have a bad name um, in the industry, especially in Australia, that's quite small. Um, you know, so really be friendly, be nice, be a hard worker um, and just understand that you probably have to work harder than you probably think you will have to at the start. Mm. But the more you work harder, the less you have to work in the future. And that is, I couldn't explain how much that is true because I do a tenth of the work that I used to do when I used to fly 172s and air vans around the Great Barrier Reef. Like this job is a tenth of the work, but it's 10 times the pay. So it's, it's a really weird system how that works, but that's just how it works. So just go through the motions and, and get to where you want to go to. 
but also don't rush to get to an airline. Um, I see a lot of people do that and I tell them stories about what I've done and they're like, wow, that's sick. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, I've never done anything like that. Oh, that would be fun. Oh, this or that. But all I've known is instructing airline. That's it. Yeah, right. And I just don't think you get the experience of aviation, true aviation, when you do that. And uh, so don't rush it. Don't rush it at all. It, it will happen. I'm 29. I have 36 years to fly an airline from now on. Mm. Let's, yeah, that's more than enough time to, you know, fly around the world and plenty of money and, and, and fly in the airlines, you know, between 36 years and 42 years, nothing is going to be different at the end of that. But at least I have six years of GA experience behind me that I can look back on it and, and really enjoy those memories and experiences and use those experiences to help me in the future of what I might, you know, come across uh, in the airlines. So, so don't rush it. Definitely don't rush it and uh, don't, don't try and be in an airline as soon as possible because you probably won't love it um, because you really do have to love aviation to, to really uh, to deal with a lot of its problems sometimes um, because a lot of them, a lot of people don't talk about. You know, you are away a lot. You do miss a lot of things, a lot of things that you can't control. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, I, I missed the opportunity. You know, I missed it not the chance or opportunity, but I missed out, you know, our scheduled time yesterday because of flying, you know, so that, and if that's a birthday, if that's a wedding, if that's a life event, you know, you just can't control that. And you can't just turn around and be like, oh, well, I'm just going to leave anyway. Okay. Well then you just lose your job. So it's just one of those things that a lot of people don't always talk about or always understand the difficult side of aviation. And then that also goes onto your family. You know, if, if, if you're in aviation and you have a family, they suffer because of it. You know, um, they're alone. You know, they're looking after kids on their own. They're, you know, dealing all of that stuff on their own because you're away. Like that's just how it is. So have a really, really good support system and really good understanding of what you're getting into before you commit to that because it's expensive. And if you go back on it, it, it takes a lot of time away from your life and money. Hmm. So, yeah. That's, that's uh, great advice, Josh. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to say before we wrap it up? Just thank you to everyone that's ever helped me. <laughs> you know, I've, I've had more help than I could ever imagine um, with the people that I've worked with and the, and the people that I know, uh, family, and just advice that I've gotten from people as well, my own family, and thank you for dealing with everything that I've put them through in trying to become what I am now. Uh, obviously, it's paid off. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's worth it in the end. But, you know, I know there were some points in, in the past that it, it felt like a, a distant goal that was never going to be achieved. So, uh, but I am super, super thankful to to everyone that has helped me and uh, more than happy to help younger people in aviation as well. Or if, you know, somebody wants to get into the American aviation side of things as well, I'm more than happy to help them. But yeah, if they ever, if you ever want to reach out, just uh, more than welcome to, and uh, I'll point you in the right direction. Wonderful. 
As this episode touches down, we extend our heartfelt gratitude to Josh for sharing his remarkable journey, and certainly remarkable it is. From mastering the skies over the Sunshine Coast, over the outback of New South Wales, to piloting the Airbus A321 above the glittering lights of Vegas, his story encapsulates the enchanting magic of pursuing dreams that span continents and oceans. Thanks so much, Josh, for uh, speaking to us from your hotel room in Dallas, Texas. Really, really appreciate you finding the time and really making the time. Um, really appreciate you rescheduling to today so that we could hear that story. There will be young pilots uh, that will get so much out of that. Even as an old guy, I got so much out of that. Uh, so thanks so much for being so open and for sharing that with us. Very, very welcome. <laughs> Glad I could do it. Join us next time for more fascinating discussions. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast platform and if you'd like to help out, feel free to leave a review. That'll help spread the word. Alternatively, you can listen to the podcast on the High Fly Media YouTube channel. Music for the podcast is titled Dance With Me by Asha Lee, available at upbeat.io. The High Fly Media Podcast, uncovering the people and passion behind aviation, one story at a time.